Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 122, The History of the Russian Orthodox Church, Part 3. The piece of music you just heard was again from the Russian Orthodox Church in Kiev, and its title is Oh God, Forgive Me. In today's podcast, we're going to learn about the Synodal Period, which goes from 1725 to 1917 and the dawn of the atheist Bolshevik rule. The post-Petrine state of the Russian Orthodox Church, commonly known as ROC, was a mess. The people in the countryside couldn't understand all the changes going on, which shattered their belief system. The life of the peasant was a miserable and tough one. The one solace they had was their beliefs in God and the afterlife, and now people in faraway St. Petersburg and Moscow had told them that what they thought was right was wrong and that they had to follow a new way or lose the path to heaven that they so desperately yearned for. Because of the changes, we see the rise of a whole slew of diverse sects, like the Christovician, Iconoborci, Dukhabors, Judaizers, and Molokans. Each one unique, each one persecuted with vigor, each popular as alternatives to the ROC. Many poor peasants and serfs saw the riches of the church and were really put off by it. They were yearning for so much more than the rich and tradition and ceremonial official church. But before we get into the sects, let's look at the situation post-Peter the Great. On the throne is his wife Catherine I, who is a shadow of an imposing late husband. With regards to the church, Theophan Prokopovich is a man wielding all the power, much to the chagrin of the rest of the Holy Synod. His main rival at the time was the vice president of the Synod, Theodosius Yanovsky. Yanovsky did little to protect himself as he spread rumors about Empress Catherine and Prince Alexander Menshikov. He threatened that if the church was not given back all of the land and money that was taken from them due to the monastery ordinance, there would be a national revolt. This kind of threat could not be forgiven, so Yanovsky was arrested, interrogated, exiled, and died during the cold winter in decrepit prison cell he was put in. There were now two different departments of the Synod, the religious and the civil, known as the Economic College. 
Neither side liked the other, and more often than not, the religious side either ignored or refused to work with the economic college. The running of the churches and monasteries would become more and more chaotic and unfocused. More and more, the old believers and the other schismatics distanced themselves from the church. After the death of Catherine, the son of Alexei, grandson of Peter the Great, ascended to the throne on May 6, 1727, at the age of 12. Peter II was in no position to rule, so now the country was at the mercy of the princes of the realm, those favored by the Romanov family, namely the Menshikovs and Dolgerukis. Prokopovich was now under attack with his opponents believing him weakened with Catherine's death. They greatly underestimated him, and one by one he took out his enemies in the Synod. Dashkov, Yurlov, and Smola were arrested, jailed, and sent to faraway monasteries. Archbishop Prokopovich was a man to be reckoned with for sure. Less than two years after his coronation, Tsar Peter II died of smallpox. Coming to the throne was Empress Anne, daughter of Peter the Great's half-brother, Ivan IV, and younger sister of the dreaded Sophia. When she came to take the throne, she was a Protestant who converted to Orthodoxy in order to legitimize her claim. With her came the German Count Ernst Johann Biron. Prokopovich made sure that he ingratiated himself with the German contingent to keep his power over the Synod. In 1734 to 1736, the Archbishop conducted an inquisition like persecution of any he deemed to be an enemy. He also ordered all Catholic Jesuits to be expelled from Russia. With all of the heads of the various bishoprics being lopped off, so to say, the Church suffered greatly. As the historian Levanov describes, quote, At the beginning of the 18th century, Drunken priests lolled about in saloons, shouted obscenities in the streets, slept along the roadsides, arguing coarsely when attending dinner at the home of their parishioners, were ready to drink heavily whenever received as guests, and fell into great criminal behavior. He further went on to say, The political opposition of the era, the aristocracy, noblemen, and landowners, could no longer endure the greed of the clergy the sale of sacraments to unworthy people, illegal weddings performed for money, embezzlement of government revenue, attending to the business of brandy distillation instead of their spiritual obligations, and incessant drunkenness. Monks and monasteries often acted together with criminals, just as did unqualified priests and the children of priests. They drank heavily and often fled from the hermitages to the dissenters, carrying away with them clothes and books. Vagrant friars wandered from door to door among private homes and rambled from monastery to monastery, not knowing where to roost. And so they disturbed the minds of the political opposition of Russia, who would threaten every protest using the whip. On September 8, 1736, Archbishop Theophan Prokopovich died at the age of 55 with the Russian Orthodox Church in a horrible state. He had gotten rid of many of the heads of the church, much like Joseph Stalin had gotten rid of his finest generals pre-World War II. Now there was no one to discipline the monks, priests, and nuns of the order. Just four years later, on October 17, 1740, 
Empress Anne was dead, replaced for a short time by the child Ivan V. The following year, though, Elizabeth I, daughter of Peter the Great, staged a coup and took the throne, imprisoning the boy and his mother, the Regent Anna. Empress Elizabeth quickly freed many of the exiled and jailed prelates that were still alive. The ROC hailed her as a savior, which is exactly what she wanted. She wasn't really interested in their well-being. She was interested in having the church on her side. The Tsarina worked hard at trying to get the church's house in order through reforms, but it was slow going. In her mind, though, the more important problem was who was going to take over when she died. Her selection was her nephew, Karl Peter Ulrich of Holstein-Gottorp the future Peter III. She knew early on that this was a hideous mistake. She also found another German to be his wife, young Sophia Augusta Frederick of Anhalt-Zerbst, the future Catherine the Great. Peter was terribly disliked, so the coup that took his life just six months into his rule was not unexpected. With Catherine on the throne, she quickly realized the need to make good with the ROC, for the next 34 years, she practiced Russian Orthodoxy with a fervor, traveling to many of the venerated churches and monasteries throughout her realm. But there were deep divisions and troubles about to explode due to the schisms caused by her predecessors, Tsar Alexei and Peter I. In 1764, Catherine issued a decree that shook the Russian Orthodox Church. She ordered the abolition of property like farms, villages, and the serfs who lived on them to be taken away from the church and turned over to the state. This infuriated many of the peasants, many of whom would follow a man who would cause great concern to Empress Catherine and many others in power in Moscow. Her reign saw the disaster of Pugachev's rebellion between 1773 and 1775. Many of the army raised by Yemelyan Pugachev were Cossacks, Bashkirs, homesteaders, religious dissidents, primarily all believers, and industrial serfs. One cannot underestimate the influence of the religious schismatics in the rebellion, many of whom were angered by her order of 1764. Well, now it's the time to discuss the different schismatic groups. As I mentioned in the last podcast, Many of the old believers, instead of staying behind and fighting the changes of Patriarch Nikon, decided to flee the cities and head to places like the Urals in Siberia, far away from the grasp of the main church and the government. The men and women of the movement had one real distinct problem, and that was the lack of priests and heads of church to guide them. Because of this, there were many different types of old believers, like the before-mentioned Christovician, Iconoborci, Dukhabors, Judaizers, and Monokans. Some of these movements were founded as far back as the 11th century, some in the 17th, and others started around the time of Peter and Catherine. The Christovician, also known as the Christs or Christi, meaning Christ community, were led early on by a peasant named Daniel Filipov, who proclaimed himself a living God. He anointed twelve disciples to spread the word about his new way of worship, which was somewhat reminiscent of sects of today. They did not believe in marriage, sex, alcohol intake, or being open with their religion. They believed in being good to one another, 
but they wanted to stay away from anyone not of their belief system. Filipov died in 1700 and was replaced by Prokopi Danilov Lupkin. As Lupkin traveled from monastery to monastery, he was able to recruit many a monk and nun to join his ministry. The meetings of his followers were in something called ships instead of churches. Gathering steam, Lupkin and then his successor, Ivan Suzlov, began to get the attention of the authorities, both civil and religious. Over the following hundred or so years, the Christovician movement's membership ebbed and flowed, depending on the severity of the persecutions of their followers. At their peak, though, they only numbered about 40,000, with Grigory Rasputin being accused of being a member, which was later denied by his daughter. The next group, the Iconoborsi, also known as Iconoclasts, first seemed to appear around 1732, during the time of Empress Anne. One can see these followers as being similar to Quakers, as is suggested by Daniel Shubin in his book, The History of Russian Christianity. As soon as they began to be well known, they were subject to mass persecutions and arrest. By 1790, they seemed to have faded to history's lost mists. The Dokobors were another popular sect that rejected the power of the church and priests, as well as the secular government. They also did not believe in icons or any church rituals. They were basically an offshoot of the Iconoborsi, who also believed that all God was in all people, which meant that a church was really unnecessary. Because of their firm rejection of the legitimacy of the government, they were heavily prosecuted and persecuted. They were moved from one area to another, depending on the attitude of the Tsar at the time towards them. By 1897, it was obvious to the Russian government that the persecution of this sect was unsuccessful. They were then allowed to leave the country, which they did, and many headed off to Canada to settle in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, where they now number about 40,000. The last sects we will discuss are the Judaizers and the Molokans. It would be a mistake to call the Judaizers Jewish, as the ones in Russia never really follow the Talmud. What they believed in was the Old Testament, as well as rejecting the divinity of Jesus Christ. Beginning in the 15th century, they had numerous adherents, but never grew large enough to draw too much attention from the Russian authorities. Over time, they would be assimilated into the Molokan sect. The Molokans had a long tradition, starting somewhere in the 11th century, as an offshoot of Nestorian Christianity. They were strictly a pacifist group who rejected the authority of the ROC. They, like the other sects, were constantly being persecuted by the Tsarist government, but with little success. By the end of the 19th century, there were estimated to be about 500,000 Molokans in Russia. When the Soviets took control, many fled the country, with a large contingent heading to Los Angeles, California, led by F.M. Klubnikin. Some headed to Mexico, while others made their way to San Francisco and Sacramento. Within Russia, the church was in a steady state of decline, and things were not really changing much under the strange rule of Catherine's son, Paul I, or the early years of his son, Alexander I. That began to change when Alexander entered his mystic era, after the war with Napoleon had ended. He began to turn towards a more conservative, older form of orthodoxy, 
something that was to influence the next four czars, Nicholas I, Alexander II, and III, and of course, Nicholas II. Alexander I became so engrossed in the Orthodox faith, many believe that instead of dying in Taganrog on December 1st, 1825, at the age of 47, he instead became a monk known as Fyodor Kuzmich. There is a fascinating book by Alexis Trubetskoy called Imperial Legend, The Mysterious Disappearance of Tsar Alexander I, that seems to suggest that, yes, this traveling monk was indeed the one-time Tsar. Supposedly, when Soviet scholars opened his tomb in St. Petersburg, all they found was a mannequin. Whatever the truth, the church was becoming increasingly conservative over the years, becoming less and less tolerant. During Alexander I's reign, he ordered that the Bible be translated into the many languages of the Russian Empire. Many within the Russian Orthodox Church were vehemently opposed to the plan to open up the Bible to more people. They believed that it should only be in Church Slavonic. But despite the protestations, the Russian Bible Society was formed and they were able to translate the book into 29 languages. When Nicholas I took over from his brother, he was swayed to the other side by the ROC and ordered the society shut down and the Bibles in Russian to be burned. But this was an age of increasing liberalism in Russia, and many copies were saved, reproduced, and distributed despite the edict. There were isolated members of the church hierarchy that believed in a Russian Bible, with the most influential one being Metropolitan Filaret Drozdov. Metropolitan Filaret had the ear of the new Tsar, Alexander II. By 1859, the Tsar believed that it was imperative to produce and distribute the Bible in Russia. During his reign, over 1.2 million copies were printed. But what happened was not what was intended, as there was an explosion of non-Russian Orthodox sectarian groups, like the Molokans, the Baptists, and Evangelicals. Within the ROC, there was growing dissent over the non-functioning of the Holy Synod and deteriorating state of the Russian Orthodox churches and monasteries. There were many attempts at reform under Alexander II, which of course, as we remember, culminated in the freeing of the serfs, but nothing seemed to help the ROC. That was to change with the ascension of the Tsar's son, Alexander III, and his close associate, who would become the most powerful attorney general of the Synod, Konstantin Petrovich Pobodonetsov. These two men were about as conservative as it gets. They believed in absolute monarchism, with Pobodonetsov believing that freeing the serfs was, quote, a criminal error. They were strongly opposed to any form of democracy and thought all reform was to have been met with swift and total rejection. Pobodonetsov was to have a huge influence on the last two czars, as he held his position as Attorney General for 25 years. His position on the ROC was very firm and is best understood with this passage from his memoirs. Quote, Out of the multitudes of religions, the state adopts and recognizes one as the true faith, which it maintains and protects exclusively to the prejudice of all remaining churches and religions. This prejudice, in general, means that the remaining churches are not recognized as true or entirely true, 
and are subject to non-recognition, alienation, and persecution. What followed was the pogroms against the Jews of the 1880s and 90s, as well as the persecutions of minority sects like the Evangelicals, Molokans, Dukhabors, and Christovician. Pope Donetsov also had a practice of never letting a bishop stay in one place for more than two or three years, and appointing weak men to the Holy Synod as metropolitans. He didn't want anyone to have enough influence or power in the church to allow for them to object to the Tsar, being the true leader of the religion. Instead of strengthening and reforming the ROC, Pobodonetsov believed that the celebrations of anniversaries of the church were the way to bring back vigor. In 1888, for instance, they celebrated the 900th anniversary of the baptism of Russia by Vladimir the Great, and following years the 1,000th anniversary of the memory of St. Cyril and Methodius. But there was no hiding the fact that the Russian Orthodox Church was in dire straits, but few were of a strong enough conviction or brave enough to oppose Papadonetsov. But there was one man who was strong enough and could stand up to the Attorney General, and that was the famous author Leo Tolstoy. He began his works on a new form of religious philosophy back in 1855 when he wrote the following in his diary. Quote, Yesterday, a conversation regarding the divinity and faith led me to recognize an immense concept the materialization of which I felt myself capable of dedicating my life to. This thought was the basis of a new religion, one that would be pertinent to the development of humanity. It would be the religion of Christ, but purged of the theology and sacraments, a practical religion that would not promise a future bliss, but provide bliss on earth. It seems to me that the only manner to bring this concept to fulfillment would be the effort of successive generations consciously working toward this goal. One generation will bequeath this concept to the next, and at some time either fanaticism or intelligence will bring it to materialization. To act consciously to unify people with this religion is the thought that I feel will drive me. Tolstoy thoroughly rejected the authority of the church and wrote often about his beliefs. His most controversial work is the 1899 book Resurrection. In it, he ridicules the ROC and parodies Pobodonetsov with the character Toporov. He also attacked the Russian political system as being totally corrupt. The book got Tolstoy excommunicated from the Russian Orthodox Church something he really didn't seem to care about. He wrote, That I rejected the church which calls itself orthodox is entirely correct, and I am convinced that the teaching of the church is a theoretically insidious and detrimental lie, and in practical terms, a collection of the most coarse superstitions and fairy tales, completely veiling the concepts of the Christian teaching and the process. All the sacraments I consider crude magic. During his life, Tolstoy had many admirers and followers, but they drifted away after his death in 1910. During this era, it would be a grave mistake not to mention the life of one of the most famous mystics of all time, John Ilyich Sergeyev of Kronstadt, who would be known as St. John of Kronstadt. 
Father John, as he was known during his life, was an extremely charismatic man, as well as a preacher, and traveled throughout Russia, preaching the word of the church. He was deeply venerated by all who met him, and after his death in 1908, Nicholas II ordered that Father John be commemorated annually at the day of his death. In 1964, he was canonized by the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, a moment that I was in attendance when the service was first held for him in New York City. Now for some statistics to bring things together about how many people were practicing Russian Orthodoxy. In 1738, the population of Russia had reached 16 million, with about 17,000 churches and 125,000 parish priests. In 1915, just before the revolution, there were about 112 million Russians, 66,000 churches, and interestingly enough, only 112,000 parish priests. When looking at the data of how many people attended church, we seem to run into roadblocks to the truth. In 1859, the Holy Synod claimed that fully 97% of the population were members of the Russian Orthodox Church. There's two problems here. The first one is the estimated number of dissenters. They put the number at 726,983, while other historians believe the number was far higher and more likely to be somewhere between 8.5 to 14 million. That would have represented between 16 to 27 percent of the population who were not members. The second one is who they defined as being a follower of the church or a church member. Was it the people who came in every single Saturday night and Sunday morning and also venerated all the holidays, or was it all the people who showed up occasionally and just showed up for the holidays. That's never been truly defined. On the eve of the Russian Revolution, all was not well with the Orthodox Church, but it was only going to get much, much worse. Join me next time as we wrap up the history of the Russian Orthodox Church, as we follow the persecution by the Soviets, the churches outside of Russia, and the present-day influence of the Church on society and politics. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. A couple of things. Uh, for those of you with iPhones, we do have an app for the podcast that you can purchase at the Apple's iTunes store. Also, please stop by the blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com where you can read more about the history of the country and where you can make a donation, big or small, as they are greatly appreciated. Stop by Facebook and join our growing community at the Russian Rulers History Podcast where you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. So now, as always, Das Vidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.